This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Chris Gammon and Jason Enberg, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 433 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the Bill and Ted trilogy of movies, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and Bill and Ted Face the Music. And this will involve spoilers for all three movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 22nd appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels, and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. The Silver Shooter the latest novel in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries, will be out on November 17th. So, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The next up, we've got Tom Grenzer, making his 14th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy and in books such as New Voices and Science Fiction. His nonfiction book, Think Like Google, is out now. And his short story, All Our Donkeys Were in Vain, appears in the anthology The Best of Galaxy's Edge 2015 to 2017. So, Tom, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. And also joining us today is Raphael Jordan, making his 13th appearance on the show. He's written over 25 feature films that have premiered on video and cable television, including The Immortal Voyage of Captain Drake, Star Runners, and Vampire Nation. He also co-wrote the new series Salvage Marines, starring Casper Van Dien and Peter Shinkota. So, Raphael, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. All right, so let's start off with Aaron. So, Aaron, how big of a fan are you of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Uh, you mean the original film or just yeah. the whole franchise? No, the first movie. The first movie. I, I mean, I really liked it. I, I don't know that I would put it in my sort of top 10 favoritest films ever, ever, but it's certainly a big part of, um, my childhood. And I definitely would consider it sort of part of the cult package of films growing up. So I, I really enjoyed it. It was the first time I'd ever seen Keanu Reeves. Um, and, Alex Winter for me was, wasn't always will be the kid from the Lost Boys. So it was like a kind of a, a neat introduction to both of those guys. And it was just a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed the first one. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any particular memories that stand out from that time of watching it or talking to anyone about it or anything like that? I mean, I definitely remember that I forgot to, I meant to look up what year it came out. What year did it come uh, out? 89. 89. Yeah. Okay. So I definitely remember it kind of being, they were about the age of my older cousins, or at least the characters they were playing were about the age of my older cousins. And I, I was at that age, um, in, in elementary school where your older cousins are just the coolest thing ever. So I kind of, I kind of vibed with that. And I remember that kids my age, it, it definitely, um, influenced the lexicon, if mm-hmm. I can put it that way. There were a lot of kids running around saying things were bogus and, 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 you know, words that we didn't even know. Um, and at that point growing up where I grew up in, in, in Canada, in Calgary, the, the sort of 
California Valley lexicon hadn't really worked its way that far east yet, or at least that far northeast. So it was kind of a novelty for us. And I, I do remember it had a big influence on sort of how we talk to each other. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I was about, yeah, I was about 12, I think, when this movie came out. And so, yeah, I, I really loved it. I just watched it over and over and over again. And I was even at the time, I, I actually learned a lot of history from this movie because, you know, like, you, you know, you're, you're meant to laugh at how dumb they are for not knowing who Joan of Arc is and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know who Joan of Arc is. So I think probably like most of the historical figures in this movie, uh, I don't know if I, if I, knew anything about them before watching this movie. So it actually was very educational for me. Yeah, not much. And did you spend the next 10 years referring to Socrates as Socrates? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no. Well, it's... I don't know that I ever stopped. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so let's, uh, let's get Raphael in here. So do you have, uh, how big of a fan were you growing up of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Pretty big in as much as, you know, for me, my musical coming of age was the late 80s and early 90s. So this really kind of hit me in the sweet spot. You know, I grew up collecting Guitar Hero magazines and playing in bands. I mean, I still play in a band. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm the kind of guy who really followed the behind the scenes stuff. Like I, I knew who was playing the actual guitar parts in the movies, you know, Steve Vai, Stevie Salas and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, you know, I always really loved the humor and the filmmaking, but also just as a musician. And it really appealed to me because mentally I'm still in that place. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm not that knowledgeable about music. So actually, maybe you can tell me. I, I actually noticed when I was doing research for this that the woman who plays Joan of Arc, I think, is a musician. And then the leader in the future is, I think, a member of um, the E Street Band. Do you know Do you know about this? Oh, you know what? That is uh, above my pay grade, actually. That's news to me. But that's really interesting. I should have known that. You imposter. I, I thought you knew about music. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you who was playing the guitar parts in the third movie, stuff like that. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, well, we'll, we'll come back to you when we get to that. But yeah. so how about Aaron? I mean, because you also you told me that you're a, you were an aspiring rock star. So did the did the fact oh, that yeah. the characters in this were uh, aspiring rock stars resonate with you? Hugely, although the the type of music that they were into was not at all the type of music that I was into. And so I found it very difficult to kind of get behind that. I mean, you know, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet is the thing that one comes back to later in life, perhaps, but at the time was just not my jam at all. <laughs> so, you know, just I, I definitely and that was earlier, too, than I think my kind of rock star aspirations really came into play. I was a little bit older when that started to happen. So, I mean, but I, I definitely, um, I thought that was the best part of the whole movie. And I, and I, I think we'll probably end up talking about that more when we get into the other movies of, of sort of the, what, what works and what doesn't aspect of it. But that was definitely kind of my favorite part of it was this very relatable kind of dreams that they had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're right, David. Um, the actress who played Joan of Arc is, in fact, was the rhythm guitarist and backing vocalist of the Go-Go's. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So That oh, explains wow. the haircut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about, Tom, what were, your, uh, what were your Bill and Ted memories, Excellent Adventure memories? Uh, this movie just pervades my entire life, starting when I was about 19 years old. I, I, my brother... I think I've talked to you before about my brother who, who like introduced me to almost every cool piece of science fiction that my mother didn't introduce me to. And, uh, like Flash Gordon, when we were on that panel, he was the one who was like, Oh, you got to watch this. And, uh, 
and you know Tron and all kinds of movies. Like, oh, you got to watch this movie. But and he was he was like ten years older than me. But he, I was home from college on a weekend, and he's like, let's go see that new science fiction movie. And I had seen like one or two ads for it back then. You know, you didn't have the internet, so my day. <laughs> but uh, but we went and we went and watched it together. He brought me to it, and I absolutely fell in love with it. And uh, most of my friends ended up loving it too. I did know the the lexicon, the the lingo of you know the Valley Girl type of lingo. I don't remember why there was. I think there were a lot of songs out around that time that were popular that had like kind of Valley Girl language in it. And just my friends would like talk that way just to try to be funny. And then so when that movie came out in in high school, we would say things like that just to, ironically. When that movie came out, I was like, this is so perfect. This is like. Uh, this is like what what we were, or as dumb as we were, um, but so fun at the same time. And uh, you know, I ended up quoting that movie and not even knowing I was quoting it for years. Dave Barry, the columnist Dave Barry, humor, humorist, had a great article on what he called brain sludge, which is stuff that just sticks in your mind and pops up many many times over the years, and it uses up valuable brain space that you could be using <laughs> for you know having having intelligent thoughts or stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, the, uh, for one example, I ripped this bit. Oh, I, I was a video boater on a whitewater river for raft commercial raft trips. I used to shoot the rafting videos and I ripped this bit off from this friend of mine who was a, uh, another video boater. And I didn't even know it was from Bill and Ted's until I rewatched it. I used to say, this rapid has many boulders and columns around much like the Led Zeppelin that covered the Led Zeppelin <laughs> houses of the holy. So, and I just was watching the movie. I was like, oh, I thought I ripped that off from my friend John. No, I ripped, he ripped it off from Bill and Ted's and I ripped it off from him. So anyway, so yeah, this movie is deep in, in my psyche. It's funny you mentioned like how there was no internet or everything. I can, I distinctly rem remember my mom showing me the ad for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure where they're both sitting on top of the telephone booth. And it was actually, you know, printed in an actual newspaper. And she says, oh, you would mm -hmm. probably be interested in this. And, uh, you know, it's a science fiction movie. And back then, you know, like any any science fiction movie that came out because they were relatively sparse, you know, you just like go. So I'm like, OK, it's science fiction. I'll go see it. So, uh, yeah, that's no, funny you mentioned that. Well, joking of ripping things off, I'll, I'll freely admit I wasn't into Doctor Who yet at this point in my life. So I didn't even realize the uh, influence of, you know, Doctor Who and the TARDIS on. Yeah, ditto. On the, yeah. You know, and what's interesting is at the time I read that they wanted to use a 1969 Chevy van, but they were worried it would be too close to the DeLorean. So they went with the TARDIS mm -hmm. instead, basically. And uh, even Cracked Magazine did a thing on that where uh, Rufus was getting sued. <laughs> well, I, I listened to a bunch of interviews with Chris Matheson, and he said they'd never heard of Doctor Who. I mean, this is, you know, in the U.S. in 1980. It was like mm -hmm. 87 or something when they were writing it. Um, and they were like, they were young, too. I mean, I think he, like, actually, they, um, he and Ed Solomon, who wrote the movie, they had been sort of doing improv. And Bill mm -hmm. and Ted were characters that they developed for their improv routines. When they <laughs> that were, feels so yeah. true. When they were What's 20, interesting is... Uh, Oh, yeah, it was originally Bill, Bill, Ted, and Bob, apparently. We lost the Bob. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, poor Bob. Bob. He's like the fifth Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, it was they were 23 when they first started doing this routine, and I think the movie came out when Chris Matheson, he said he was 30. So, I mean, you know, I don't. they said they had never even heard of Doctor Who at that time, which I think is believable. And it's believable. very possible. And plus, like, you know, with all due respect to the TARDIS, it was hardly the full, first funky phone booth out there. And for whatever reason, phone booths pop up a lot. And, you know, obviously Superman yeah. had his phone booth and just, mm. I don't know, for whatever reason, that's always been 
Uh, there's all sorts of uh, early spy movies where things mm-hmm. happen in phone booths. It's you know, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a fi- good spot for adventures. I find it plausible, to be honest, because yeah, I wasn't really into Doctor Who until the 2000s with the uh, with the new with the new adventures and the new Doctors. So, you know, so I don't think it was as prevalent in the 80s if unless you had access to the BBC or something. Uh, it was on PBS. It's it's pl- it's plausible, but but from, I had a very different experience from everybody else. Where when I, you know, you guys were talking earlier about how you didn't these historical figures you learned about almost through Bill and Ted's. I I had a uh, very engaged and engaging pair of humanities teachers in high school, and they ran us through everything. So by th- by the time I got to this movie, I knew all those figures very well, and so and loved it, loved that he, that they got that Bill and Ted just got it so wrong, and then learned it, you know, and that was the whole basis of of their uh of their their triumph but uh but I also the doctor who thing no i when i saw this movie i totally was like oh it's just like doctor who it's a it's like an american version of doctor who because we had you know channel 12 we had like i don't know what we had like 10 channels or something like that growing up and uh and one of them was pbs and on pbs we got the better british shows like monty python and doctor who and um and i watched a ton of doctor who in high school and, and, you know, just was like, this is such a bizarre, cool show. And so by the time I got to Bill and Ted's, I was like, oh, they just kind of adapted that into the, and I didn't really, I kind of assumed they ripped it off, but I didn't really mind it. Cause I was like, good. Cause I want an American version of that. Like, and much, you know, racier, faster, all this really great humor in it. I, I absolutely ate it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let me just explain the premise if people haven't seen. If anyone, if there's any poor benighted <laughs> souls out there who haven't seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, so basic, and you you definitely have to remedy that asap. But but the premise basically is that there are these two high school seniors in San Dimas, California, and they're about to flunk their history class, and um, you know, sort of flunk out of school. And uh, it turns out that in the future, oh, and, and and they spend all their time like trying to be this like heavy metal bands with the two of them, except they're not any good. Um, but it turns out that in the future, they're destined to become uh, these like, like basically the whole culture in the future is this utopian culture that's all based around their music and their ideas. Um, but somehow, I mean, the time, the time travel is really wonky in this movie, but, but somehow like if they flunk their history test, um, you know, none of that, that, that great future is never going to happen. And so someone from the great future comes back in time. It's a character named Rufus played by great comedian, George Carlin. And he gives them this time traveling telephone booth, uh, to help them pass their history test. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's basically the, is there anything else about the plot that we need to set up oh sure well you know i know people would would say you know bill and ted is not the the franchise that needs to be dissected or analyzed too closely but since we are talking about it and how little sense it makes (laughs) this is kind of the opportunity right um i won't go into the second film too much yet but i think the first and third film kind of have a commonality in that they lot they lack a proper antagonist and the plot doesn't really make sense it's it's a very enjoyable film i love it but it, from a time travel logic perspective, if they were destined to do this thing in the future, why are they suddenly not? You know, uh, that never really made any sense to me, even as a yeah. kid, like Rufus intervening. You know, it, why? How? I th- yeah, I th- what went wrong? I think we can just stipulate that the time travel makes no sense whatsoever in this movie. <laughs> like, I, and no then one... they lead well, into that <laughs> fact at a certain point, right? They start to turn that into I a can... running joke that it makes no sense. They do, and and I agree that the time travel makes no sense. But I would disagree with you, Raphael, that there 
that that it that it makes no sense that Rufus would have to come back because it could just be that that's just part of there's like a a loop in the timeline like that's how it happened in the first place was that Rufus went back and helped them that's how it always happened so Rufus knows he has to go back and do that otherwise like if he doesn't go through this it's never going to happen um it's like you know if you don't you know if you don't get out of the road when there's a Mack truck coming the Mack truck is going to run you over sure yes he he goes back in time to do it but if he didn't go back in time to do it then it wouldn't have you know it, it's not that it's in jeopardy it's just that he must do this thing or he will be in jeopardy you know, I, I suppose, and I tried to wrap my mind around that, the time causality paradox nature of it is just something, there was never an original timeline where Rufus didn't intervene, but that almost seems right. at odds with the second film's story, which we can get to in a little bit. Yeah, well, let's, let's try to stick with the first film as much as possible. I mean, but, you know, I mean, the, to me, the, the most noteworthy thing that makes no sense about the time travel is that for some reason, they have to, they have a limited amount of time to get ready for yeah. their history test, even though they have a time machine, right? There's a ticking clock, but they have a time machine. Right. <laughs> which they can use in any manner yeah. that they want to, because they then use, not to jump too far ahead, but they use that time machine and, and the concept of time travel to solve all their problems, to sort of um, deus their way out of various corners that they've got themselves into. They, they're just like, well, we could just go back in time after this is over and then fix it. So, you know, it definitely doesn't make any sense that they have this this ticking clock aspect to it. But the thing is, and I think we're going to run up against this repeatedly in this panel, so best to just get it out of the way. Um, just about anything of substance that you say about this movie is definitely overthinking it. <laughs> so, yeah. so right. you know, it's like, it's just kind of best to, at the at a certain point, I think you're meant to take it on its face. I don't think it's ever meant to be taken as a, a quote unquote serious science fiction movie. And if you try to do that, it's not going to be very satisfying. Well, I, 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 will, right. I will say, Aaron, I mean, I, I do think the thing you just mentioned, so this is toward the end of the movie, but let's just get into it. So um, at the, toward the end of the movie, um, um, they need to they, they okay so at the beginning of the movie it's established that Ted's dad's keys have gone missing and then at the end of the movie or toward the end of the movie Bill and Ted are like oh we we really could use your dad's keys and they're like okay how about but we don't have time to do it right now and they're like okay well how about after the whole adventure's over we'll get in the time machine and we'll go back in time and steal the keys and leave them for ourselves and then he's like well where should we leave them like how about behind this sign and they're like oh well here they are and so like i think that that's that's actually like brilliant science fiction and mm -hmm. especially when i watched this in 1989 or something i was like that's really really clever and especially back then i think was the kind of thing you would only like you're like the people who wrote this are obviously like science fiction fans like sure. a non-science fiction fan in 1989 would never have come up with that i don't think and I think, you know, even when you're making a lighthearted comedy like Back to the Future or anything, screenwriters are always striving for a certain modicum of internal logic. I mean, they're trying their best, you know. <laughs> and to your point, David, that was a really clever thing. I actually kind of wished we saw them after the fact, like after the credits. Uh, you know, not a lot of movies did that back then. It would have been fun yeah. seeing them go around and actually do these little tasks. Yeah, and just to, to yeah. clarify, I really liked that too. I'm just saying that it, it was it fundamentally at odds with the, with the concept <laughs> that they have this. Yeah, you know, the sand yeah. is draining out of the hourglass. <laughs> Actually, just kudos, by the way, to that being the best joke in the whole let, movie. Let me just add too that I mean, in terms of like, I, 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 as I said at the time, I'm like, oh, these guys are, science, are are big science fiction fans who wrote this movie. It's just obvious. But I didn't know back then. You know, one of the writers is Chris Matheson, who's the son of Richard Matheson, who's a legendary, legendary, legendary science fiction mm -hmm. author and screenwriter so yeah so he definitely like had that pedigree i actually didn't know that either that's oh, really cool. interesting 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that joke was one that we we talked about over and over and over again too, Dave. The the keys. My friends and I would just would talk about that all the time. Like, and just it would just pop up in conversation. That you know, the this follow up joke too. Remember a trash can, and then the trash can <laughs> falls out of the air. It really does just fall out of thin air. My girlfriend and I were like, okay, <laughs> even given the logic of what they're saying, where does it exactly? Come from? <laughs> Yeah, and then and then why can't the guy get it off his head? Like yeah, it was kind of like <laughs> you know, watching watching that as a kid. I was like, brilliant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well, if we're talking about things that I mean, even leaving the time travel thing aside, the thing that like makes absolutely no sense that that kind of bothers me is so so they they they've gone back in time and they're in medieval England and they're they've uh, disguised themselves in suits of armor and then they're goofing around oh, fighting fighting totally. with swords <laughs> like it's uh, like their lightsabers and then Ted um gets pushed down the stairs and then um Bill hurries after him and sees some guard stab the suit of armor through the chest presumably killing mm-hmm. Ted and then then later Ted just shows up he's like no I fell out of the armor when That's I fell down the, the stairs best part of the whole thing <laughs> the armor that would have taken 45 minutes and a squire to put <laughs> yeah. on <laughs> I just fell right out of. Yeah, that that was the only thing that bothered me about this movie as a teenager mm-hmm. was that particular scene. <laughs> I was like, you can't fall out of a suit of armor. But as an adult, as a as a fifty one year old man watching that, it broke me up because I was like, the joke is that he's such a skinny, like you know, it's like we're totally weak. <laughs> can't possibly fight you. Um, that, that whole, that whole running joke that they're just super weak and that he would be, the idea that he would be so skinny and weak that he would just fall out of a suit of armor (laughs) cracked me up as, as an older Uh, man. Speaking of the medieval scenes though, to your point, Tom, um, Rufus always intervened in the timeline, I suppose, but just the fact that the princesses are in the band is proof of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But again, you can't, they have to be part of it. You can't make sense out of it because it's like, wait, Napoleon went back to the, like all those characters went back into their history after like going to the mall like, and exactly. eating ice cream and all that stuff. Apparently. Yeah, they were fine. It's just, you just, you just fine. But, but I, just I do think, you know, you, like you said, you, you can't overthink it because it's like that, uh, the famous screen, uh, screenwriter teacher, Robert McKee says, look, you're either on board with a movie or you're not. And if you're on board with a movie, you can forgive a million mistakes. And if you're not on board with a movie, like two or three things are just going to throw you out of the movie and, and for sure you know, bother you. And so this, this movie is one of those that as a kid and even as an adult, it's just like, yeah, just go along for the ride. It's super fun. You don't really need an antagonist in there. In fact, when we get into the next movies, I think it's a mistake to have an antagonist in there, which they kind oh, of interesting. Prove. But anyway, I'll I'll walk myself back, and cause I know Dave, we're not talking about the other movies yet. Well, it's kind of like in the first film, the closest thing to an antagonist is actually Ted's father, because the looming yeah, yeah. threat of sending him to the academy. But uh, but yeah, it is interesting. When I watched the first film for the first time in a long time, it struck me how little story there really actually was. That's why there's that long montage with all the historical figures in the third act, just you know, raising hell at the mall. But it's still you know an incredibly fun film, which is why you overlook stuff like the armor gag, which really made no sense. I mean, do you overlook it or is that just an inherent part of the type of movie that you're watching? I mean, to go back to the point about being on board or not. And I think, I think that logic applies for me um, for some films more than others, because there are some that aspire to a degree of seriousness or storytelling, or dare I say art that 
this just doesn't, there is just rolling around in its own gleefulness. And that's part of what's fun about it is it's just making no pretensions to be anything other than a goofy feel good film. And it manages it. And for me, like, I, I totally take your point that uh, Raf about the not having a story. But for me, like the whole, I think the best scene in the whole movie is Napoleon at the water slides. <laughs> it's just, it's got nothing to do with anything, but the guy who plays Napoleon is so mm -hmm. delightful. And the way that he, he acts in this scene is so Napoleon, or at least yeah. how you would imagine him. And so French. And so just, he's completely aggro about the whole thing. And it's just amazing shoving kids out of the way, and it's got nothing to do with anything. Like the whole right. mall scene and Genghis Khan's going to town in the sporting goods. It's just, that's like the best parts of the movie to me. And the parts that were actually quote unquote plot where, you know, Ted's arguing with his dad about going to military school or uh, the whole subplot with Missy, which I just don't even want to talk about. Oh, I can't wait to talk that. about that one All when right. we get to the whole trilogy though, as a through line. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, but yeah, so anyway, just I like I like that aspect of it that it just wasn't even trying to be a th proper three act. Here's the climax kind of mm -hmm. movie. Well, I do. I mean, like the the thing that struck me rewatching it is that there's like zero character arc, and um, they you know, don't like, develop. Yeah, well, they're and and they never like. I mean, I actually think it might. I'd have to see. I'm I'm not sure about this, but I feel like it might have been an improvement if they developed some appreciation for history or something like i felt like you know there's never any implication of like oh maybe we should have like done our homework or any you know like because like, the, the whole setup is like they're gonna flunk out of school because they didn't do their homework and then somebody from the future comes and saves them and i feel like there, there's the part where they're they're stranded like in caveman times when they have to fix the antenna on their um, time machine and I feel like there should have been a scene there where they're like actually talking to the historical figures and learning about them and being like, oh, this history, this mm -hmm. is actually really interesting because they're somehow able to give this great history report at the end when it's not clear that they would have learned anything about history <laughs> in the course of this adventure. Right. I, I disagree. I, I think they I think they just were the filmmakers were just wise enough to leave that part out because nobody really cares about watching them learn history whereas you get the sense at the end that they I learn care. history because they're pronounced <laughs> well you you might be an outlier but they they pronounce they, you know they pronounce socrates correctly they they know a lot of that when they're on stage giving that kind of montage based history report they're saying things that make sense that actually link up to what's what actually happened in history so it's clear that they learned something they don't show you learning it they don't they don't show you them learning anything but you get the sense that they did and at the end they they, they do change there is this tiny little character arc yeah, there at the end yeah. when they say um you know hey maybe we should actually learn how to play these instruments that's exactly <laughs> right, what i was right. going to sure. say they're like maybe we should learn how to play these instruments and it's Except. carried over into the third movie where because basically dave what you're saying is right that you know the, they're essentially handed a, the ultimate cheat for their history report. Yeah. They don't actually have to do any work. And th that does come up again in the third film, Not to Jump the Gun, where they, they don't want to cheat. They don't want yeah. to essentially make use of that same trick where they just kind of hand wave away all the work and they jump ahead to the part where it's already fixed. That is, in fact, what they end up doing. But there is a certain gentle degree of resistance to this idea, which you could if you were tr trying to stretch yourself mm. into it argue well, you suggests know, that they learned something from their first experience 
Yeah. I think the character growth is nicely spread out because just to clarify something real quick, they don't actually decide to learn their instruments till the end of the second film. So it does take them a solid two films to get to that moment where they're like, oh, yeah, that could be a good idea. (laughs) Isn't it the end of the first one? Mm, No, no, it's the second. But they do get to the maybe we should learn the instruments point at the end of the first movie anyway yeah so they yeah, yeah, yeah they don't get to there where they're like okay now we're going to learn the instruments but at least they're considering it <laughs> sure i suppose i mean the first film ends with that whole gag of them still being terrible and you know they don't actually yeah. change any of that for but the longest time i feel like the other way it could have gone at the end of the first movie which i'm, I'm you guys are all going to say this is overthinking it but I feel like I will never say that, David. You could have you could have had like the character arc could have almost been the teacher who because 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 it's basically like um, Bill and Ted are like not book smart at all, but they have good hearts and they're passionate. And it's actually their good hearts and passion that ends up saving the world when book smarts. The implication is wouldn't do the trick. So it might be, you know, it might be like a nice little like grace note at the end of the teacher, like appreciates their their like good hearts and passion and you know and that there's like lots of different kinds of people in the world and some are book smart and some aren't and there's value to approaches to life that aren't book smart like it could be something like that i think you're overthinking it yeah i told (laughs) i told you you were gonna say that but (laughs) i i think it would have I mean, I agree with you that it would have been nice to see a little bit how the the teacher reacts to this, and maybe maybe they don't have anything to say about the fact that they shot out the <laughs> six shooter. It was the eight, it was the eighties. Filled the auditorium. Aaron, it was the, with Aaron, it was the eighties. So you could just shoot a gun off in school and nobody cared. <laughs> yeah, you could, and you could, yeah. Anyways, and it turns out Billy the Kid was just a nice guy. Which I didn't realize. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. He starts out as this like marauder, and then within like a few minutes, he's like a really cool guy. But no, there I had a there was a student in our high school when I was a kid who came in to, I think it was right around Halloween or it was Halloween, and he came in dressed as Rambo, and he had actual guns and an actual bandolier of live ammo around, wrapped around his You've shoulders and his waist. You've got to be shitting me. Where was this? Um, this was in Waterville, Maine, uh, Central Maine, same town as Colby College, where Dave and I went to college together. Um, and he he just came in and uh, and hung out. And then the teachers, one of the teachers, was like, "Is that actually live ammo?" And he was like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Oh no, 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 no! You can't have that in school. You're gonna have to go put that in your locker." <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> that was it. I mean, and I think about that now, and I'm like, "Holy cow!" Like we've come. And when I saw that Billy the Kid scene, that's who I thought of. I was like. Yeah, this was back then. I mean, that that to us today is like no, 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 no. But back then, it wasn't so crazy. I mean, it, w- it was still crazy, but it wasn't as crazy as it is today. I agree. In so far as it really struck me on rewatch, but as a kid, it never really made me think twice. Okay, wait, let yeah. me ask you guys because this is something yeah, I've exactly. never understood. So they go back in time and they're playing cards with Billy the Kid, and um, Bill says, "Whoa, three aces!" Like, what is going through Bill's mind? at that moment like what is he hoping to accomplish i think he's, he's just, just showing he's just a really bad poker player with no poker face you know he had a good hand but he gave it yeah. away yeah the gag is that he tells ted like you got to have a poker face like me because ted's all like hey this is great this is fun and he's like no no you gotta have a poker face like me look and he's got this mean look on his face and then the next second he goes hey three aces like he's just so but he, he really bright. does yeah. have three aces <laughs> 
He does. And presumably some other players around the table also have a bunch of aces, which I'm just going to insert if Billy is the cheating dealer. I'm not sure why he's filing out three aces to anyone else, but um, that's not really the the way you cheat at poker, as far as I know, is to give everybody (laughs) else a really awesome hand. Because the the way I always read it was that... (laughs) Bill is like pretending to have three aces so that the other players think that Billy is cheating because he wants to provoke some sort of confrontation or something. But I'm just not clear why he would want to do that. Oh, my read on it was that it was kind of like rounders. Essentially, you know, Billy the Kid was trying to hustle the table by having these two in cahoots with him and he was feeding them good cards. But then they blew it. Yes. But then they blew it by yelling out, hey, three aces right after he said you got to have a poker face. Right. Which was, it was just uh, kind of like a comedy thing. Okay. I, I still don't understand why, why feeding a, a person who doesn't know they're in on the joke three aces as, hel- as a help. But maybe I, I just don't understand. Maybe he figured they were just so well, dumb that he could still win even though they had three of a kind aces high? No, no, no. no, no. The, Billy, scene, Billy no, the kid the didn't want to that, win. Yeah, he, he lays it out to them in the scene before. He goes, here's the deal. Anything I win, I keep. Oh, that's Anything true. You win, that's true. I, keep. I forgot about that. And they go, so he's he's like enlisting them to be part mm-hmm. of this, like you know, that. cheating ring. And then he's gonna. Okay, so so his plan is that he's gonna like make Bill win a lot of money. That Bill is then gonna give to Billy the Kid, and the people at the table aren't gonna suspect anything because Bill's winning the money, not Billy. That's sort of correct. The, yeah. Okay. Roughly. Exactly. You got it. You got it. All right. Yeah. It's a super complicated <laughs> yeah. situation. Um. I didn't think it was that complicated. I thought no, it was no, pretty. No. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm not. No, I, I was being sarcastic. I, it, seemed, it seemed to kind of jump out at me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, because because where where I was going with that is, I guess it doesn't fit then. But because Bill is actually kind of smart in a way. But there's this like weird, um, what do you call it? Uh, Naivety. You know, there's this dis- well, no, there's this disconnect between he's like smart in some ways. Like obviously he's really dumb. In, like they don't know how to, how to pronounce Socrates or Beethoven or Freud or anything like that. But then he like calls up um, Ted's dad and pretends to be Deputy Van Halen down at the station. Like he's like cun- like sort of cunning <laughs> in a way, you know. Well, and he also one of the other running gags that I adore is the fact that Bill especially is constantly using really great words that there's just no way he would know how to use. Like I, I'm trying, I should have written down the exam. This is where I need notes. One of them was egregious though. He says that is most egregious. <laughs> and it's like egregious <laughs> is a word I would use, but not a lot of, I mean, not a lot of people just, I don't think a lot of people use the word egregious and particularly this guy who's supposed to be not book smart at all, who doesn't, you know, know how to pronounce Socrates, but this is most egregious. Screenwriter just probably couldn't help himself since it rhymes with Bo Dave. No, I think it's – I have two things to say about that. The first thing is, I don't know, Dave, I, don't, I suspect you never hung around with a lot of stoners in in high school. <laughs> and uh, and number two, because a lot of them can – they can be like absolutely brilliant and completely airheaded at the same time. Um, and then no offense <laughs> to anyone who's a stoner. Uh, that's probably even a bet. I'm showing how not woke I am. But anyway, the the second thing is that no, that character, that like valley type of character, frequently did use giant words. You know, like trying to like, I used to have friends who called them five dollar words, but they'd always be throwing them out there, and they're like, you know, in their kind of stoner valley voice. Um, no, I, I I thought but he that used was... them correctly, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah, no, I, I think they I think they they did that. Like, you know, you picked up words in high school and just like. 
use them to sound more intelligent than you are. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, it, it seemed to fit with me with, well, with people. Let me say, I mean, I, I, one of my favorite lines that I'd completely forgotten about when I rewatched it, and this sort of justifies the whole Missy subplot to me, although it's like super problematic for, in a lot of ways. But so uh, uh, Sigmund Freud asks Bill if he wants to undergo psychoanalysis. And Bill says, no, I'm good. Just a slight edible complex. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> and again, it's like, wait, he knows what an edible complex is? I mean, may, maybe exactly. he learned it in the course of this adventure again. But like, yeah, but there is this he is sort of like smart in, in a lot of ways. I love that line, David. Yeah. It was very Sopranos-esque in the way that they would always use words correctly, but in the, correct in context, but the actual wrong word. I, that was always very clever. How do you mean? Can you give an example? Oh, man. Uh, like Tony Soprano, he was always saying, um, like if he meant to say uh, somebody deigned to do something, he'd be like, they dwayned to do it. Or, you know, like he was always, you know, it was, it was always a bunch of malapropisms. It was a running gag and it was great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like this when he had squall moose cancer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so when, but when's an example of when Bill or, t or when Bill did that? You, oh, you mean, you mean just his malapropisms? I, I don't remember him actually. Oh, David just gave an example of using one. Any word the, uh, didn't he? No, I don't think Bill uh, ever misuses a big yeah, word. Malapropism. I thought he used it correctly. Oh, I spaced yeah, out then. Sorry. sorry. Yeah, no, I think he mostly <laughs> does use them correctly, except there's, uh, and I, there is one that he repeatedly uses in, um, while they're in hell. In the second one that he uses completely wrong. Ah, oh, shoot. All right, Dave, I'm going to start taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> there is one. He, he keeps saying it's like it's most and he's the, the word is supposed to mean something bad and he's trying to use it in a way that's good. And, and so it just made me I, I, I assumed that this was another example because there are lots in which in slang in which a word is actually appropriated to mean the opposite of what it literally yeah. means. Yeah. Like gnarly. Right. Or uh, I whatever. assumed it was an example. Right. Yeah. I mean, gnarly is not necessarily the opposite. It's right, just right. like, it's, it's a, it's a very, how, how they got from the original word. To, I suspect it's a skateboarding thing. It's a half pipe thing, but anyways, that's just a suspicion, but this is like literally the absolute opposite of what he was trying to say. And it's, Ah, All right. Well, let me let me just mention one other thing about the first movie before we move on. I mean, there's this there's this scene where they end up in the utopian future where all the people come out and are kind of like doing air guitar and, you know, repeat everything they say. And like that scene, like gives me it literally gives me chills. So, like I literally get like choked up watching it because just this idea of, you know, you know, of, of creating art and then like being able to see it change the world in such a profound way that really had a big impact on me as a kid you know i mean that's sort of what i mm. have tried to do with this podcast mm. you know i just imagine like <laughs> in the year the 2700 based on yeah it. it's uh, the whole world is based on it yeah but i mean i think that that's i don't know if anyone else had that reaction to that scene but it's always just been really just so powerful to me oh you know what <laughs> i did david uh to your thing uh, you know what it was i totally misheard that line i think when i watched the movie um, when he says edible, edible complex, I always thought he said edible complex because <laughs> he was like, is in terms of getting high. Huh. So that, you assumed that, that he would, right? <laughs> right. So in my brain turned it into a malpropism, oh, exactly. but it wasn't, I guess. <laughs> they didn't have edibles back there. They had edibles, <laughs> but they didn't call them that. But, uh, but anyway, so, so no, I, I, I agree. I got that feeling too, Dave. I get like the hairs on my arms stand up when I, when I watch that scene and, uh, 
And one other thing I'd like to mention, if I could, about this movie that I absolutely love is how they get they get all the references wrong because of what 1980s culture did with all of these old historical references, like Iron Maiden. You're like, put them in the Iron Maiden, and yeah. they're like, excellent, <laughs> right? And then he's like, execute them, and they're like, bogus. Because they don't know what an Iron Maiden is because all they know is the rock group Iron Maiden, the heavy metal band Iron Maiden, which when I was a kid, I remember distinctly having this experience when, you know, I knew what an Iron Maiden was just because I was like such a big fantasy fan and I read a lot. And then when Iron Maiden came out, I was like, oh, that's going to confuse a whole lot of people. They're going to think it's just, there's going to be a lot of people who think it's just a band. And then when we had in humanities class, when they talked about Thomas de Torquemada and they talked about Iron Maidens and, and uh, people were like, sweet, Iron Maiden. And I was like, that's hilarious. I knew I knew that was going to happen. And then when Bill and Ted's came out, I was like, yes, full circle. Here we are. This is awesome. But did it bother you at all, though, that he didn't actually put them in an Iron Maiden? After he says that, he just goes to basically off with their heads? <laughs> well, well, no, not at all, because I thought he, he got the sense that for some reason they thought Iron Maiden was getting off easy. So he was like, yeah, all right, I fine, execute them. Oh, okay. Like he, he just escalated it right there. Okay, so nice. I remember what the word was, you guys. It was heinous. He keeps saying when they're Ooh. in hell that, that that every time something bad happens, he keeps saying, that was non-heinous. And it's like, well, no, actually it was heinous. No, he, does. Oh, he yeah, says yeah. it was No, he says it was non-non-heinous. Oh, there are a lot of nons at oh. one point. The fir- I think the first time he says it, it's non-heinous, and then there's one time where he just adds so no, many no, nons no, 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 no. I'm, I'm almost sure that he, that he says that he he he, <laughs> he he always says that was non-non-heinous, meaning it was heinous. And then one time he says that was non-non-non-non-non-heinous. I might have put the wrong number of heinouses there, but it was like you know. <laughs> have to go back to the How archives. How could you not know what I meant then when I said that? I I, I don't I don't. It's like. These so are he is really complex movies with lots of. He is really smart around. then. <laughs> All right, but let's uh, let's move on to let's get or let's bring Bogus Journey in here. So I mm-hmm. have never liked Bogus Journey. I didn't like it when I saw it as a Whoa. teenager. I didn't <laughs> like it when I saw it ten years later, and I didn't like it when I saw it yesterday. So, um, but I saw wow. I saw on Facebook Amen. Raphael say you, you said it, you thought it was maybe the best of the movies. Yeah, yeah, I think it's easily the best film of the three, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I could, I think it basically completes the two movies arc really well because as a duology, the third film is great, but as a duology, it finally ends with the Battle of the Bands, which was necessary and missing from the first film. I mean, these guys are supposed to be legendary musicians. We need to actually see that, you know, and so the climax of part two was the perfect ending of the two movies. Um, but also, you know, to my earlier point, it finally had actual antagonists that created inciting incidents and created a story. So you, you not only had uh, Chuck Denomalos, <laughs> a former gym teacher turned time terrorist, <laughs> but you had evil Bill and Ted who were just hysterical. I mean, I couldn't get enough of those two. And plus, you also had Station, uh, then eventually Stations, and the whole thing with death. I can't tell you. I've I've always loved part two, and and even as much as I loved part three, I think part two is still the best film. I never noticed this. This is just a little note. But when he, when um, Denomalos first comes in, and um, uh, George Carlin's like my old teacher, and he's like my my best pupil, and then later you find out he was his gym teacher. <laughs> gym teacher. <laughs> but um, but so Aaron, so where do you? It sounds like Tom agrees with me. So where do you come down on this? I mean, it's there's no false advertising in that title. It is super bogus. I, I There's almost nothing I like about it. I have to be honest. I don't want to be too hard on it because there were moments that were that were great. But it just 
I don't know. Just the the gags almost always annoyed me. Yeah, I, I I can't put my finger on it, and I and I think it's I think it's maybe that they were just trying that little extra bit harder, if that makes sense. Hmm. I don't know. They just seem to go a little bit over the top, and like so. For example, death. I mean, death was probably my favorite part of the movie, um, and there were so many moments where I really liked him. And then so many other moments where I was like, oh, it's such a groaner. It's just that you just missed it by a mile. Um, and it almost felt like, yeah, maybe there were too many gags crammed into a, a, any given scene. And some of them just felt so empty. So, for example, um, when they're in hell and they're running through their personal hellscape labyrinth, Ted's hell was so lame. His hell was so so Bill's hell it was actually kind of funny which is that he's at his grandmother's birthday party and his grand his granny is super gross and she wants a kiss and and so little bill so what as soon as he walks through the door he turns into a little kid and the little kid is just horrified by this what is obviously a, a traumatic memory of his um gnarly old dried up grandma trying to kiss him so i thought that was kind of cute but then ted's is like He's in a pink room and he picks up a basket and an Easter bunny that isn't even a scary looking Easter bunny, like a little pink fluffy Easter bunny comes up and says, you made your little brother cry. And, it, and I, you just keep waiting for the punchline here and it never comes. Yeah. Well, so no, I have very definite ideas about why I don't like this movie, but I want to get Tom in here too. So Tom, why don't you like Bogus Journey? Well, First of all, most of my friends really liked it. I went to, we were so excited when this, when it came out because we had all loved the first one and we went and, and then we quoted. I remember some of my friends quoting over and over again, Station. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, that doesn't mean anything. Be quiet. That's an invented catchphrase. I don't know. It, it, that always kind of bothered me. But the deeper reason that I didn't like this compared to Bill and Ted's is exactly the reason Raph likes it is that there's an antagonist. And see, I think that Bill and Ted's was kind of brilliant in that the antagonist is the history report. It's not, which is a big antagonist to a teen kid in high school. And then to me, it's brilliant how, whereas the the antagonist, I mean, I love the, I can't pronounce, I can't remember the guy's last name. You you guys pronounced it. Uh, He's a brilliant actor. Denomalous. Denomalous. He played uh, Blofeld, I think, in The Spy Who Loved Me. So I, I, I think, I think I've got, I didn't look it up, but I, I think I was like, oh, that's a guy from The Spy Who Loved Me. He's awesome. I love the actor. I think he did a great job. Um, but I don't, I think it's just so uninteresting to, to be like, oh, there's this guy who wants to destroy everything and you have to stop him. To me, that's just super uninteresting. Whereas, and he's it's, very Darth Vadery as well. You know, I have to admit, this, this, this has taken a shocking turn. I didn't expect to be the sole <laughs> voice of, uh, you know, advocating for part two. Of reason. Well, <laughs> yeah, because honestly, I feel like yeah. it's cri- no, but- it's critical appraisal has really you know uh, improved over the years. And like I know when it first came out, critics didn't like it as much as part one because it was a bit of a departure. But I don't know. I, I think it's really. I mean, it certainly has a great visual language too. There's so many little things like when Bill and Ted are walking, uh, but they're all kind of pale against you know the the real world. I like and that. Every- yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of nice touches to it. And Elizabeth and Joanna, this is the closest they come to ever being real characters. They actually have stuff to do. Um, 
Yeah, and, and just the fact it leads to the battle of the bands, and then you have like the Bill and Ted robots, and and the confrontation with Anomalos, and like uh, the extension of the clever thing from part one, where they're like, "Well, we already did it, dude," and then, you know, it's like, you know, they essentially foil him in the end. I just thought it was perfect. Well, you know, if you look at the scores on Rotten Tomatoes, the first movie is eighty one percent. This is, I think, fifty two percent or something, and then the third one is eighty one percent again. So, I mean, there definitely is like. It shouldn't come as that big of a surprise to you that people feel... Well, but it does, though, because that's kind of my point. I feel like it's been reappraised in the 29 years since, and I think a lot of people feel it's the best one. Well, I mean, that's just my perception. I, I maybe, feel but. like, um, just from like reading reviews and stuff, I got the sense that a lot of people who like Bogus Journey are like it for the reasons you're stating that it's like are like more like because they see it as like a movie more for film buffs, that it has like interesting visuals and the... Um, you know, the, the playing the games against death is apparently a, a reference to an Ingmar Bergman film, yeah. um, The Seventh Seal. Um, yes. I'll meet you halfway. It's the Batman Returns of this of this <laughs> of this series. You know, Batman Returns has a lot of advocates. People think it's the best, but most people still probably say the first. One. Yeah, but I'll tell you why. I think why I don't. And, and I just you know, and my my objections to it are not intellectual so much as just like I don't laugh while I'm watching it, and I'm. That, and that's that's exactly what I was get, trying to say. It gets to the end. I'm just kind of in a bad mood, whereas I'm in a good mood at the end of the other two. I couldn't agree more, and I think that, but I think there's a reason. I had this revelation when I was watching when I was rewatching these movies that I will try to apply next time I go back and try to write some fiction, and it won't work because I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that has nothing to do with it. But but this revelation I had, or this this thing that hit me, was that the first movie works because look, you can have an antagonist that's not a person. Like uh, uh, Jack London in The Call of the Wild, it's, you know, man against nature. Um, but uh, but I thought, or even like Moby Dick. But I think uh, I think that what what really worked for me and what made it what made the first movie so funny and what makes the second movie so not funny is that the antagonist in the first movie being a history report, it works so well for the humor because a history report is something that's very important so important to somebody who is in history, who is in, in, uh, in high school, who isn't maybe doing so well, that that resonates with a lot of people. Like this is a, it, and the, the fact is that it feels so big to you when you're a kid, it feels like the world is going to end if you don't ace this history report. And so the, the brilliant thing about that first movie to me is they went and they took this history report and they said, okay, we know it's just a history report, but let us now pile on top of that all of this, all of these added stakes, like if you don't ace your history report, all these horrible things are going to happen. And that to me is why Back to the Future works as well is because, hey, look, it's only, um, you know, it's only that that this guy has to kiss this girl. And, and it's not, you know, it's not Marty. It's it's only that is that this guy has to kiss this girl in high school. That's He has to take her out to this dance and kiss her. And, and that, that's not a big thing. But we're gonna, but we know that to you, the viewer who is probably a high school kid or the person who has been a high school kid, that is the biggest thing in the world at that time for you. And so in order to show how that feels, in order to get you back to like, this is how a history reporter kissing a girl feels when you're in high school, we have to pile all these added stakes on top of it of the world's gonna end. You know, all this horrible stuff is gonna happen if you don't do this this meet this like meaningless thing 
that's meaningless to everybody else except you. So it gets into the feeling of it. And I think that's what they miss with the second movie is they go, oh, let's make it that the world's going to end. No, make it something that's super important to all people of their age. And then, but it's not important to anybody else and say, look, I'm going to show you how important this is by heaping all these added stakes on top of it. But see, okay, but you keep talking about what's important to the viewer. What was important to me when those movies came out was rock. And the ah. rejection of rock as the solution to things in part two was vital. Uh, I never, honestly, I was never too intimidated by a history report. Maybe I was rare, <laughs> but I, I did fine. Um, but the rejection of the idyllic utopian society based around rock to me really spoke to the whole, you know, like all those twisted sister videos where the kid's like, you know, why are you, the father's like, why are you wasting your life? He's like, I want to rock. You know, that was me at the time. I wanted to rock and I still do. So I think that's why the second film works for me. That makes total sense to me now why why it works for you so much. That that I understand now, but but it seems to me that that's not mo how most kids felt and I trust me, I had fine I was fine with history reports too. I'm just talking about the general experience of high school and not being prepared for something is something that I feel like 95% of the people out there can can relate to. Whereas, you know, wanting to spend your whole life on rock was something that maybe 10% of the people well, let, 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 me, let me talk about my, my issue. My main issue with the movie, though, is that I think it's too dark and weird and mean-spirited. And usually I like things that are dark and weird and mean-spirited. But um, I feel like it doesn't match Bill and Ted. Because, like, Bill and Ted, to me, the whole appeal of it is that these are guys, and they're not book smart. But as I said, but they're passionate and... Um, uh, sort of, what's the word? Just like enthusiastic, you know, they don't let anything get them down and it's just fun to watch them. And it's just, you know, it's sort of like you, you just enjoy watching them meet each challenge with un, uh, undiminished enthusiasm. And like so much of this movie is just like, there's like the evil Bill and Ted's who are like really nasty. I mean, they're like trying to squash cats and they're like, um, telling the princesses to put out and calling people fags. And like, they're just really sort of off-putting to me. And I know they're, they're like the evil versions. I get it, but it's just like not fun to watch them. Um, and I mean, some of this stuff is funny, but, but just, there's just, just to me, there's just too much in the movie. And like, Bill doesn't want to kiss it. Like his, his big fear is he doesn't want to kiss his grandma. It's like, come on, that's your grandma. Just kiss her. Like, it's not a big deal, you know? And it's, <laughs> it's like, 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 I feel like Bill from the first movie is like a sweet kid who would like love to kiss his grandma. You know, it's like, I just feel like somebody, it just feels like it was written by somebody else who just had a different idea of comedy. And it's just like more of a dick. And there's like, um, there's the part where they're in heaven. They like beat a bunch of people up and steal their clothes. Like, there's just like something like off putting and kind of like, douchey to me about bogus journey that is not true at all of excellent mm. adventure i agree well you know what that's a really interesting point because i really do enjoy mean-spirited comedy so maybe that's <laughs> why and I, i'm dead serious like larry david or anything <laughs> like always sunny in philadelphia I, that's my sweet spots so that's probably why i gravitated towards it i mean maybe i also really like mean-spirited humor um and and dark humor and yet i couldn't agree with you more dave and i and i think you know, that's kind of why, you know, just listening to, to Raf and, and Tom talking about their sort of kind of big picture reasons why it worked or didn't work. And for me, it was just, I, I want to say it was something that substantive, but it just wasn't. It just, it just, it tonally felt completely wrong from the beginning. And I think, I feel like maybe somebody part of the project sensed that. And so they tried to jam more of these little gags in there. Like, 
I, I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to sit down with like a pen and paper and sort of write down the number of gags in the first movie versus the second movie. But I, I feel like there was a lot more packed in there in the second movie. And, and a lot of them failed. They were just fireworks that never went off. And you can only tolerate so many of those because before it becomes just kind of a drag. And so if you combine that with this, with this tonally sort of very different approach where you've got a, a sort of Nazi-esque villain um, and all the rest of it, it just, it just doesn't feel like it's, it feels like it belongs in a different franchise and they tried to make up for it by being funnier, except that they weren't successful at that. Yeah. Like I, I was just watching this, this thing where, um, you know, there's the scene where Bill, like the evil robot Bill, like breathes some sort of like knockout gas in Missy's face. And that was apparently they, that was like, they, they redubbed that. And, and initially he just punched her in the face and knocked her unconscious. And they're like, Oh, this is maybe going a bit too far. And so they like reworked it a little bit to make it. So he like knocks her out with his breath. But it's like just the fact that like that was in there in the first place. That, oh yeah. He just punches Missy in the face. You know, it's like, there was just, yeah, there's just something like not like it doesn't have the same sort of good natured childish glee as the first movie. It just feels, yeah, like maybe trying to be and and like, I mean, all humor is based on cruelty is something that's often said. And there's some truth to that. But yeah, I just I just feel and I don't have a problem with mean spirited humor. Like I love um, uh, Larry David and Seinfeld and all that kind of stuff. But it's just like it doesn't match Bill. That's my issue. Is it just it doesn't match Bill and Ted. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it would be fine in some other movie. It's like you thought you were going to Disneyland, but you ended up at Sleep No More. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with I agree with those points too. I, I when I first saw this movie, I had that feeling that like, oh, it just it just it's not Bill and Ted. But um, you know, despite my my long winded analysis, I agree with the points you guys just made too. That it just didn't feel good. Um, and yeah, Bill and Ted are more like kind hearted, and this was very mean spirited and and uh, very dark, and just didn't seem as fun. Yeah. And I feel like I laughed more at the end credits than I did at anything like in the hour leading up to the end credits, which is sort of an issue. Um, I did really like the end credits, though. I mean, so so in the end credits, um, Bill and there's like this montage of newspapers describing Bill and Ted's rock careers taking off. Uh, and I wrote down, wait, where is that? I wrote down what some of them were. Um, uh, Stallions tour Midwest, crops increase 30 percent. Bill and Ted tour Mideast, peace achieved. <laughs> Stallions use world's nuclear arsenal to fuel amplifiers. And air guitar found to eliminate smog. <laughs> so, uh... Awesome. What did you, Raphael, what did you think of the end, those end credits? Oh, I thought that was great, you know? I mean, I thought the whole thing was great and charming and hilarious. <laughs> no, what what more can I say? Sorry, <laughs> At some point, it's just a difference of opinion. It, it's all right. Sorry, dude. Sorry. And, oh, and yeah, no as somebody worries. who's from the Northeast, I'm I'm all about the mean spirited humor. Now I live in West Virginia and I've I've had to stop with the sarcasm. I've I've actually been told I was telling somebody, you know, I feel like people just don't get my humor down here. And this one guy goes, this one guy that I've known for twenty years goes, Yeah, it's really mean. It's hundred <laughs> percent a thing. I don't know, Dave, are you experiencing this in Austin? My sister also lives in Austin and she's lived there for a couple of years now. And before that she was in New York and before that she was in my family, which it just does not get more sarcastic and mean than that. And she's like she's she fit in really well in New York. I, and I used to say I was a born New Yorker and she now is in Austin. She's like, people just find my sense of humor really appalling. 
uh, always like it's way you too know, just dark. Just because the because the COVID hit once we moved here, I honestly have not interacted with anyone uh, in the area, so I, I couldn't even say. Yeah. Um, you know, it is honestly interesting though to have this conversation because I feel like the, the the reasons I like the film are probably the same reasons you three don't. So I'm I'm just part of a vocal minority that really thinks it's the best film, I guess. Because even now I'm like reading this review just to make sure I'm not crazy. <laughs> and this guy's like, yeah. In retrospect, it's clear that while Bill and Ted's adventure invented the characters, Bill and Ted's bogus journey perfected them. So yeah, I don't know. Oh, somebody else who's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, just, so just yes. so no, agree to I don't, dis- I don't mean that. Agree to disagree. But let's let's move on to this new movie. So this is Bill and Ted Face the Music. So this is like 29 years after uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. And um so so the setup of this movie is that Bill and Ted are now middle-aged, uh living with their wives in adjacent suburban houses and they have teenage daughters who are who who idolize them. But their celebrity status has faded over the years, and they have never written the song that is going to unite the world that that they were told by the people from the future that they were going to. Um, and so this is actually I, I, I like this setup. So so basically, like someone takes them takes them to the future, and it's Rufus's daughter actually shows up and brings them to the future where they're sort of browbeaten and told that time has run out and they need to produce the song now or else. The universe is going to end, and they they're so desperate they decide to steal a time machine and go into the future to the to a time when they have written the song and steal it from themselves and come back with it. Um, so, um, which obviously makes no sense. <laughs> so, uh, so Tom, what do you think of the? Uh, what, were, what were kind of your initial impressions of Bill and Ted Face the Music? So I watched this in chunks. I watched it in two chunks, and the first chunk ended when the the climax of the movie was just starting like just before the climax of the movie. And, uh, and I was, I really didn't like it. I was like, Oh, it's, it's kind of just like very similar to uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. I'm not really enjoying it. It's kind of interesting to see Keanu Reeves in this role, but it's also kind of like creepy in a way. Like you, you'd kind of expect the two of them to grow up and then to see like a couple of 50 plus, maybe almost 60 year old men acting like, you know, valley teenagers was like it was just kind of like a bizarre tone for me um but i was like okay well i'm kind of i'm enjoying this more than bogus journey i'm liking it and then i i stopped it and then i i went on facebook the next day and there was some, some of my friends who were the same age as me were just gushing about it just absolutely like this is the best movie that's come out in so long it's exactly what i needed you know it's it's like everything i ever wanted in a bill and ted's movie it's just what the doctor ordered during COVID. You know, it's like almost like changing their lives. And I was like, oh, you guys liked it. I was like, what did, what did you like about it? Because they were just saying how great – they were like using all this hyperbole to describe how great it was. And so He was totally said, bodacious. <laughs> they were like, well, it's the idea that, you know, music could could change the world, could like change the whole world, everything bad that's going on. And then – I went and watched the end of it after that, and I was like, "Oh!" And the end did really feel good to me. I got to admit, I, I ended up being like, "Wow!" That they actually landed that. I I didn't think they were going anywhere with this, but it really felt good. So I'm kind of of two minds about it, really. Hmm. Aaron, overall thoughts on the third movie? Overall, I liked it. Um, I think it was much closer in in spirit and in tone to the first one. Um, 
and it broadly, I found it like broadly satisfying. And I really, I liked the setup, even though it does involve a little bit of shaking the etch a sketch from the end of, of Bogus Journey, where it seems like we're meant to think that it, even if the song hasn't, we, we don't really know if that's the song or not, the, the song that they're playing on stage in the Battle of the Bands, but it seems like they're, they're already bringing world peace. Well, and, actually, and let me, so let me just throw in of... there. So it turns out that the um, the end credit sequence with the newspaper montage was added in post-production and the writers didn't write that. So they were really horrified because they're like, oh, man, we have all these plans for the third movie. And this kind of like scuttles all those plans when they because they didn't see, oh, they didn't see it until they saw it in the theater, I think. But sorry, but go ahead. Right. So well, that, that makes a little bit more sense. Um, but anyway, I, I like the setup of it. And and yeah, broadly, I think. I, I really liked it, but there were just a couple of things about it that it was kind of close, but not quite. Um, and I think the, the biggest, the biggest issue is that what I thought was so clever was that, you know, where the first movie, the, the most fun parts, at least for me, are watching Bill and Ted gather these historical figures and then bring them forward in time and sort of see them interact with San Dimas at the mall and all of that stuff. And so they kind of reboot that idea in this movie where they have the daughters go back in time to pick up notable musical historical figures. And I thought, this is perfect. But the problem for me is that that actually gets relegated to the subplot. And Bill and Ted, who are the main characters, are essentially sent off on their sort of journey through this movie is, is actually the subplot. So in other words, they're like not really driving the main action. They're off, they're trying to, but they're basically off spinning their wheels. Whereas the daughters are the ones who are putting together the real, the real story, but they're not the main characters. And I think the disconnect between that for me was too bad because I wanted to spend more time with those historical musical figures. I wanted there to be more of them. I wanted to see more of them interacting in the modern world. And because that was really the, the fun of the first one for me. And that that was unfortunately missing in this. That's a great point. Raphael, overall thoughts? Overall, I thought it was a wonderful combination of the first two. Um, you know, it had a lot of the fun and structure of the first one, but combined a lot of elements from the second. Um, you know, uh, it's funny because to listen to the other comments, you know, I thought it was actually a very kind of ingenious thing to have. It was a very generational handing of the Baton sequel because the daughters went off and they had their side quest, which was instrumental. And the way they kind of interwove the two storylines, I don't even know if either was an A or a B. They were just kind of like one A and one B. I mean, it worked really well. Um, I don't know. Uh, I had a lot of random thoughts. You know, it's like my girlfriend and I, when we were watching it, we watched it twice and we spent way too much time trying to unpack all the time travel shenanigans oh, yeah, and make logic of it, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, overall, it was just a joyous kind of movie. And especially the ending was so feel good. I think to Tom's point, it, it was something that people really needed. And yeah, I saw an outpouring of love on social media for it. And that made me happy. Uh, honestly, my only real complaint was the title. I thought it should have been like Bill and Ted's Fair well tour oh, or something you know that's good I like, I like that. <laughs> but you know i liked it yeah honestly i thought it's interesting to hear you say the writers didn't enjoy the newspaper clippings at the end of part two because well i think their reaction to it was kind of it, it was pretty genius i think like well let, let me just say i don't think film, it's that they didn't like it it was just that they hadn't they weren't involved in it and it kind of like messed with their plans but i don't think they said that they didn't like it from what i remember well sure but the idea that like 
if they just kind of rolled with it, it's pretty interesting because the concept that the weight of your expectations could actually derail your destiny. I found that very yeah. intriguing. Like I was yeah. really looking toward, forward to this film because of that, that essentially just the knowledge of what they would do kept them from doing it. Well, yeah. When also like the scene where um, at the very beginning where Keanu Reeves, where, where Ted is, is like, maybe I shouldn't going to sell my musical equipment, you know, and he's, he's like middle-aged, you know, like, and I just, I just know people like that who, you know, like they always wanted to, they were in a band and like, oh, then they had kids and like, I have to grow yeah. up. And it's like, do I get to the point where I like sell my, <laughs> sell my guitar and whatever and like just give up on my dream and stuff. And so like, like Tom was saying about how the history, te- passing the history test kind of resonates with teenagers. I felt like the like, do I give up on my rock star dreams as a middle-aged person? I think res- would resonate, you know, with middle-aged people. Mm. Definitely. Sure. Definitely. Well, actually, that's interesting is Tom was mentioning they were in their 50s or maybe even pushing 60. But what was odd to me, what struck me with the continuity of the films is they made a point of saying it was only 24 years later from the end of the second film, even though it was 29 years in real time. So these characters are only around 42, maybe 43, Hmm. even though the actors are older. Hmm. So that's worth Hmm. keeping in mind. Unless you assume they failed a bunch of high school. (laughs) Let's be honest, it's possible. Um, or the, or because they, they, that's they, true. They they could have been like twenty one. They could also be did. older um, as a result of time travel, right? Like if they had spent right twenty whatever how many many years in caveman times, then come back to their own time, you know, or something like that. That's a good and point. Plus, they they spent all that time where they were learning to play guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. At the very end of the second movie, they went off stage. Yeah, that's really clever. They're older than their birth certificates would say. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like uh, not to let one of these podcasts go by without bringing up Douglas Adams, but there's a great line in one of the Hitchhiker's books where he's like, due to a, a number of anomalies with time travel, <laughs> Marvin the Paranoid Android is now 37 times older than the universe itself. <laughs> I love that. I'm glad you guys pointed that out because, yeah, on paper, they're probably 42, but in reality, 52 or something. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm actually surprised, though, to hear that Tom didn't like the beginning of the movie because I, I was I was laughing a lot watching this movie. Um, that opening scene was awesome. The Tibetan throat singing. <laughs> oh man, I just I could not stop laughing. I thought that first scene was laugh out loud. I mean, honestly, it really tickled me to see Missy end up with the brother oh after all. Like every film, she just keeps changing, and to see the father's anguish that was hilarious to me. Yeah, and I love the line where he's like, "That would technically make Ted's dad his own son." <laughs> 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 Ted's dad is like, me. No, it wouldn't. I was dying. It's it's like if Netflix is dark, we're a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I, I I found this really really enjoyable. I mean, I think it's it's not like everything I ever dreamed. I, I mean, I I had pretty low expectations going into this. I thought it was like gonna be mediocre, and I was pleasantly surprised at how enjoyable I found it. And yeah, I, I agree with Rotten Tomatoes critics that I, I thought it was about as good as the first movie. Yeah. I mean, my my real. And I feel like it's like, like Raph was saying this, it's kind of like the perfect movie for this time. It's like such a, it seems like everyone involved like loves Bill and Ted and they just made this movie because they wanted to pay tribute to the characters and, you know, reward the fans for their loyalty over the years and everything like that. So I think in terms of all those things, I think it's basically like struck the perfect note. I feel like I was a little disappointed in just how much of it is just sort of callbacks to the earlier movies. And so it, it really, to me, functions more as a tribute to the earlier movies than really a movie in its own right. 
Um, and I feel like since, I mean, like I said, I didn't really like Bogus Journey, but I thought that Bogus Journey had established the pattern that like we did time travel in the first one and we did like the journey to the afterlife in the second one. And I thought that to continue that pattern, it should have been something different in the third one. Like I've always thought like, cause, cause they talk about how Bill and Ted's music allows communication with extraterrestrials and stuff like that. Oh. I thought, I always thought the third. The third movie should have been like Bill and Ted go to outer space and make first contact with aliens or something. <laughs> That's but, brilliant. Oh, That's wow. brilliant. Yeah. But yeah, but I feel like that movie would have been a good movie to come out in like 2000 or something. I feel like after 30 years, like you kind of have to deal with the fact that they're so much older and it would be kind of weird to have them like yeah. be so much older and go off into outer space. That might sort of be at cross purposes mm-hmm. with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was alluding to. I'm just a big fan of these 30 years later films that kind of act as codas to a character story. Like even Luke in Last Jedi, you know, seeing him 30 years later or these characters. I agree with Tom that sometimes it can be depressing, like the Dumb and Dumber sequel. But for me, this actually worked great because even though the story was more or less complete, we get to see this little coda and hand it off to the daughters and to actually see it. You know, the whole story come to fruition, the world being united through music. Yeah, it was just wonderful. Yeah. I like the fact that they kind of had all those callbacks because it felt appropriate for this particular film. Like, I, I, I get what you're saying in terms of sequels in general, that sometimes just riffing off the same old things is a little bit tiresome. But it felt appropriate for this particular one because of, of how much farther in the, further in the future it was set and just kind of almost feeling like, and and I guess they couldn't have known when they started making this movie, obviously, but feeling like this is something that we all need is to watch a movie that fundamentally consists of some, some sweet, lovely people (laughs) trying to bring world peace and that's it. Um, Mm -hmm. And not really having anything sort of overly dark to get in, in their way. Like even the, the, the antagonist, the proximate antagonist in the form of the robot that's sent back in time to assassinate them turns out to be, <laughs> um, you know, goofy also a little bit, a little bit like a, a reboot of, of the death character from bogus journey, um, to some degree. And, and I just, I really like that about it. I, I guess the one thing, I, I mean, aside from the fact that I think that the, they got the wires crossed in terms of who does what in the plot a little bit. Um, I felt like <laughs> Bill had his essential Billness, but Ted was lacking his essential Tedness. And I don't know mm. if it's if it's on my end as the viewer because I've seen Keanu Reeves and so many other things. But just watching all three of them back to back the way that I did, there's this spark and this joy and this goofiness to young Ted that just didn't quite get there with older Ted, which of course makes sense. Um, but it's yeah. a shame. It, it's just, he doesn't quite have that exuberance, that just bright eyed goofiness that was so, so endearing uh, about, cause you know, Ted is just that little bit, just that little bit sweeter, just that little bit dumber. And that's kind of missing somehow from older Ted. And I, and I missed him. Well, that's what I, that's what I mean. It was almost like it dropped into a, a weird kind of uncanny valley not in the robot sense, but just in the sense of here you got this guy who's supposed to be this young, dumb, sweet character grown old and the same person, but you can't so I, I I think I've read that Keanu Reeves has kind of been through the ringer and I, I just think maybe he just can't access that anymore and that's 
not necessarily a bad thing. It just seemed like trying to force it to be there was kind of dissonant to me. Well, it seemed mm-hmm. to come off to me. No, I, I agree with that. But I, I think that like they should have leaned into that more that like, you know, he's the one who wants to sell his in- or who's thinking about selling his instruments. He's the one who's really been crushed by not by by trying so hard for so many years and not succeeding. I think if they had made more of that in the story, because I agree, he just like Keanu Reeves, he just seems like fundamentally sad and and tired. He just seems tired. Well, you know, we did talk about the lack of character arc in part one, but how there was an arc over the course of the whole trilogy. And I think you saw that more in Ted. He he does even admit to being tired. You know, he's the one that says to Bill that he can't really go on. But Bill's exuberance carried them, I think, for so many years. And you see that through Winter's performance, too. I mean, yeah. he really brought it. He was, he was so sensational. Good I mean, yeah, I yeah, I couldn't believe how how well he could still channel that character after so many years. There were so many great characters in this, too. I mean, it had a great cast, probably the best cast of the three so far, because, you know, Kristen Shaw was Rufus's daughter, and I, and that was a great little Easter egg. You know, Kelly was actually the name of George Carlin's daughter, so I thought, thought that was nice. Um, and, yeah, the robot was fantastic. Anthony Kerrigan is just on a roll. If you guys watch uh, Barry, he plays NoHo Hank, and that guy is just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, the daughters were great. The robot was the robot was really refreshing. It was uh, it, totally unexpected. And like you said, kind of a callback to how, what the same thing they did with death, how he started out mm-hmm. as this ominous figure and turned into this kind of fun loving uh, character. But, but I do agree, Dave, that the, um, that it was a really cool thing, how they, they played up, how he was kind of facing this very resonant middle-aged man kind of dilemma of, do I give up my childhood dream? I got kids now that, that was very resonant. And then, moving forward to a climax where it's like a a resolution of the movie where it's like, yeah, you know, it's not actually you. It's your, it's your kids that you're thinking about giving up the music for it's, that's actually the right choice because they are the ones who are going to do this. Um, that was real. That really hit home to me as a, as a dad, like, I don't know, it, it, that really worked for me. And I, I really got the emotion from that really felt, felt very good to me i don't know did anybody else get get an emotional kick from that that kind of revelation at the end for me it was definitely very emotional probably not quite on that same level i'm not a parent um but i like just how it, it became a team effort i thought like the daughters were obviously you know the catalyst and instrumental because they essentially produced the greatest track ever made and and like bill and ted still got to be right there and they were playing on it and the track itself was pretty fantastic it's how i would imagine that track to be that actually saves the world (laughs) yeah that worked um and i and i liked yeah i i liked the daughters a lot and i liked the fact i mean i suppose probably everybody saw i saw it coming from a mile off that that it was going to be the daughters that actually were fundamentally the ones who who wrote the song um and i like that aspect of it and so i don't really have a solution to the problem that i raised about the fact that um that the daughters are because you know the, the dilemma that they put themselves in i think is that the daughters are off um, recruiting the historical figures, which is essentially what solves the problem. So they're the ones, that's what I mean about the A plot and the B plot in that sense. Like they're the ones who are actually moving towards a solution to the problem. And, but it's Bill and Ted's movie. So, you know, as much as you want to spend more time on that plot line, you can't not spend more time with Bill and Ted. It's their movie, however likable mm-hmm. the daughters are. And so you have this kind of dilemma where you've got Bill and Ted essentially off on what I would argue is a side quest while the daughters are, are kind of getting the job done. 
I don't know that right. I have a solution to that. Um, but it, it did mean that we didn't get to spend enough time on the plot line that I wanted to spend on. Um, but, but two other things that I did want to say, one is that I thought that, um, the, the actress that played Billy, who was basically young Ted in terms mm-hmm. of her, her, oh yeah, Bridget she Lundy just Payne. crushed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like her, she, she had more essential Tedness than Ted did. I oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> she just, yeah. she, she just does such a good job of that. Um, I would absolutely watch more with just those two, Samara Weaving and, and Bridget yeah, Lundy yeah. Payne. They were fantastic. Completely, yeah, completely. But the other thing is, I mean, do we want to talk about the the musicians that they chose at all? Because I, I think it was interesting. And and I also think it's interesting that in this movie, the one thing that just was a record scratch for me was they kept they referred to 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 Louis Armstrong as Louis Armstrong, um, which I don't think is the preferred pronunciation. So it's it's interesting to me that, you know, if this movie is sort of supposed to be about music and musicians that nobody involved with the project was like, but that's not actually how you say it. Or maybe how, someone how did. Say, and then how do you say every... it? Lewis. Lewis Armstrong. Is that, is that like a recent revelation? Um, I don't think so. I think it's just that I think I, I don't know sort of how it became his almost his stage name became Louis Armstrong. He's always known as Louis Armstrong and maybe that's why they went that route. Uh, um, but I think it's, it's, I mean, he certainly from, from what I've seen, all of the sort of footage and songs in which you see him refer to himself, it's Lewis. And I think it was always known uh, among musicians that his name is Lewis. So it's kind of interesting in this movie. Like what was the, what was the decision process there to go with Louie? Just cause mm. I guess that's whatever, cause it would be a yeah. record scratch for everybody. Cause they didn't want 10 million it. people on Reddit to be like, what is this Louis Armstrong <laughs> moron? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If, if they figure the people who know what you know are probably a minority, Aaron. And, and so they probably figured, well, we're not going to, we're not going to have the 90% of people who don't know the real story arguing with us. We'll Which just- I guess would be fine. If your whole like, yeah, but anyways, it's just, it was a bit it so is interesting. It's a me, good right? point. <laughs> yeah. Because he did pronounce his own name, Lewis. That's definitely true. I mean, I guess they leaned into the, the record he put out in 1933, which was Laughing Louie. Maybe that, that was it. And I, I think know. that's, that's the, the theory about where it came from, um, mm-hmm. that it became Louis Armstrong. But I, I don't know that I've ever heard a musician pronounce it Louis Armstrong. Hmm. Yeah. Ever. So maybe they could have put a gag in there where he's like, actually, my name's Louis. <laughs> they could have satisfied exactly. everybody. Like, that could be the post the post credit scene. It's just him. It's like, actually, it's pronounced Louis. Right. It's and it and it just it jives so well with the Socrates thing. I would just would have thought that it would have been funny if they were like, actually, Bill and Ted are the only people who are saying it right. And yeah. Everybody else. Oh, is that would have been funny. <laughs> it's funny. I had I had a small complaint about Jimi Hendrix actually. Um, after that first initial scene when we meet him, uh, and he sounded very much like Jimi Hendrix. Anytime after that, like when he's playing along um, yeah. in the street, it did not actually sound like Jimi Hendrix's style of rock. And that, as a guitar player, that actually struck me as an odd choice. It was more Van Halen esque or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's a weird one. I'm not a musician at all, so I, I don't I don't know. But I, there's a couple. I just want to mention a couple of things before we run out of time. Um, I did. I, I I liked the the robot from the future, but it it really did bug me that the utopian society based on the principles of party on, dude, and be excellent to each other is just going to go and kill Bill and Ted. And I, I thought that you know, as I said, especially since how much that 
scene from the first movie meant to me as a kid. And I think it would have been better if it was some like follower of Denomalous or like some, just somebody else sends the robot mm-hmm. back in time. Um, I had one other thing I wanted to mention, but um, I guess uh, Tom, you can, Tom, go ahead. Well, just talking about riffing on the music idea. I, uh, I'm not a musician either, but I was a big Joe Satriani fan and I didn't notice that that was him playing Rufus's part when I was a kid. But as an adult, when I watched it, I was like, that's got to be Satriani. And now that you said, Raph, that it was, I'm like, I'm super happy that I, <laughs> that I as not a musical person at all, I'm like, I pegged that. I got that Okay, one. wait, wait. So, so the other thing I wanted to mention is that, so Aaron said like, oh, she wished we'd spent more time with the daughters. And I feel like we could have gotten more time by cutting out the moms who like, I didn't actually yeah. even understand what was going on with them. I'd have to go back and watch it to even understand. Like somehow there were like older versions of them taking them through time or something. Like I felt like that was so underdeveloped that I didn't even honestly understand what was going on with it. And it could have been, could have been cut completely as far as I was concerned. Hmm. You know, what's interesting about the Elizabeth and Joanna characters. I didn't realize this till afterwards, but they were never played by the same yeah. actresses. You know, I yeah, kind of, yeah. I, fi- I figured they were different actresses this time around, but even in the first two films, they were different. So that's, yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's weird. But I did like conceptually that they were brought back for, you know, a significant part in the movie. Well, but this is my thing with the lack of character arcs in these movies, because I actually, ha- I wrote this down. So in the first movie, the issue established at the beginning is that Bill and Ted haven't learned anything in history. And then you would expect somehow the re- resolution of that story to be they learn the importance of a good education. But actually, that just completely gets dropped pretty much. And then in the second movie, the issue is that they don't have jobs and can't, you know, don't have jobs that are good enough to afford to get married and they want to get married. And so you would think that that would come full circle when they like learn to set good goals for career or something like that, but it just gets completely dropped. And then in the third movie, the is- issue initially, I get sort of a secondary issue, I guess, but that their marriages are falling apart because they can't establish boundaries between the two couples. And then that just gets completely dropped and, and never. And so, I mean, I guess it, it yeah. fits the series, but it, it just seems like there is like, like, why even establish that at the beginning if it's not going to. As a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's funny about it too. Did anyone else have this reaction? There's this moment where they're trying to, they, they realize that their marriages are on the rocks and that they're not providing the lives for the princesses that they thought that they were supposed to be, that they promised them. And they're standing on the, in the driveway of their beautiful suburban houses. Yeah. And I can't remember if it's Bill or Ted is like, I mean, you know, we, we, did you ever think that we were just going to be giving them this? And I'm like, these really nice houses <laughs> in the suburbs. It's just like, it's not like they're in some <laughs> shitty apartment in like right. the deepest, yeah. darkest. I was just going to say the name of a borough, but I'm not going to because yeah. then everyone from that borough. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's kind of endemic to our media right now where we're like or not, not even right now forever where like everybody you see on TV you're like wow those people are in every commercial they just look like they're super affluent compared to like <laughs> most of the real people that I know. And I'm down with the suburbs being hell. I can completely vibe with that, but I just don't think it made any sense in that moment to be like this is this horrible life that we provided for them, you know, chirping birds and perfect lawns. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting because overall, I feel like the third film was kind of the most fun and joyous of the three. Like, it's the one I'm more likely to rewatch, but I, I did have a few logic issues with it. Can I rattle off sure. three real quick? Quick, quickly. <laughs> 
Okay. So why was everyone being sent to hell? Like anyone who died just went straight to hell. Yeah. <laughs> And um, and and to your point, David, I didn't exactly. I thought the weakest part of the film for me was all of a sudden we don't have faith in Bill and Ted anymore, so let's kill them. I understand why they needed that as a as a thing to drive the plot, but it was kind of iffy. And then also, no matter how much my girlfriend and I tried, we could not really wrap our minds around the fact that there were future versions of Bill and Ted who had not succeeded beyond the point in the film at MP46 or whatever, you know, like essentially alternate reality, Bill and Ted's that Bill and Ted, our versions were still able to interact with somehow. And then at some point they start shooting at their younger selves, which doesn't make any sense, especially because even later they're like, wait, but if younger selves die, then we die. And it's like, did you just figure that out several years (laughs) after you opened fire on yourself in Dave Grohl's house? Is that character development? I I agree with you entirely because two minutes earlier, they just said, uh, we can't stab ourselves, you know, or something like, you know, in the confrontation in the closet. But then they start firing at them. Yeah. The time travel doesn't make any sense. I mean, you have, but you have to assume like somehow, it, it's never going to work, but like somehow there's like an, a present that's somehow distinct from the past and the future that, you know, that has some like independent reality. Some, you know, some, it, that's that's how it seems anyway. That's the, you know, the, the timeline that or the time. Yeah, I guess the time the time that Bill and Ted start out in the first movie where they have to get back and do their history report is somehow like a more real yeah. present than the other presents throughout time. Um, well, and they kind of gestured toward that when, when Kid Cootie makes some comment about uh, the quantum realm, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and what's, how do you think about this? Uh, when we see old Bill and Ted on their deathbed, essentially, and that's a great scene, by the way, really strong acting, too, all around. I liked it. But they're basically dying from old age. But I also kind of read into it that they're being erased from existence because Bill and Ted are about to achieve their destiny and their success. So the failed Bill and Ted's just simply won't exist. Maybe. It's dark, dude. That's like some bogus journey shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> totally bodacious though. Um, I'm just, I, I had a couple of things in my research that are, I came across. Okay. So um, when um, in bogus journey, when Bill and evil Bill and Ted throw Bill and Ted off the cliff, it's actually the same location as the Star Trek episode that they were watching earlier in the movie. It's called Vasquez Rocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't For notice sure. that until this most oh, yeah. recent time. Yep. Oh, believe me, if you if you live out in LA, LA that's very well okay. known. Yeah, we were right okay, on top cool. of that. Um, and then also the the um, the location for Bill and Ted University is the Donald C. Tillman Water Reclamation Plant, which is also used as Starfleet Academy in uh, in the Star Trek TV show. Hmm. Mm. Star Trek all around. Yeah. I also just liked you. You were mentioning. Uh, I liked the fact that you meet um, Sir James Martin, head of the Faith No More Spiritual and Theological Center. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a fun cameo for sure. I love Faith No More. Yeah, that was fun. All right, cool. So we're pretty much out of time. So I guess why don't we? Uh, are there any other? Uh, topics that anyone wanted to bring up before we start wrapping this up? Well, I did find an article that's called 91 Thoughts We Had While Watching Bogus Journey, so I'll be sure to send that one. <laughs> we'll, we'll be sure to read the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, yeah, it sounds like we're, we're pretty much good. So why don't we get to just some, some final thoughts 
on this ex- whole experience of uh, watching these three Bill and Ted movies and what they mean to us in our hearts. So, uh, so Aaron, final thoughts on Bill and Ted. I'm just, I'm glad they completed it as, as a trilogy. I think it's, um, I think it's done now. Um, really enjoyed it. And I just wish there was more kind of, I, I like the spirit of it. And I think I wish there was more of that out there that is just, uh, shamelessly fun and doesn't want you or require you to, to think too much. And it just, you know, wants to take you on a, on a ride that ends up someplace sweet. And there's some of that out there, but maybe not enough, especially right now. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Cool. How about Raphael? You know, I, I mentioned this, but I'm, I'm overall a very big fan of these 30 years later sequels, whether it's Tron Legacy or even, um, you know, Blade Runner 2049. If for no other reason, it gives everyone a reason to, you know, go back and rewatch the originals. And that's a lot of fun. I hadn't seen those in 20 years, probably. So just revisiting the whole thing was great. And I love the third <laughs> one. Raphael, do you have like a, an album coming out or something? Oh, um, actually, my band, Visera did just put out an album a few weeks ago. Thanks for asking. Yeah, we've never actually talked how, about my music on here. How would people uh, find that? I think Bill and Ted would love it. <laughs> 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 There's a lot of guitar, you know? So I don't think that's I think, what uh, he means. <laughs> um i i already forgot the actual genuine question but uh it's it's been well received so far um so you know i'm kind of a product of the 80s 90s guitar era so i tried to infuse that spell spell it for viscera it's how do you spell that oh you know what it's actually spelled just like uh viscera targaryen from game of thrones v-i-s-e-r-r-a interesting oh yes so thanks everyone check that out it's like the real life Bill and Ted right here. <laughs> um, all right. So Tom, final thought on Bill and Ted. Yeah. I, I thought the original movie was just fun and footloose. There's something f- really fun about it all being about a history report with stakes piled on. But I think that uh, on the other hand, as I get older, I think I'm kind of, I think I started out my life as kind of an Ebert sort of character. I just loved everything and I would get all excited about everything and I'm slowly morphing into <laughs> Siskel. <laughs> um, so that may be why I, I don't like these movies as much as I should. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm just looking forward to the time when Raph's music unites <laughs> the planets and unites the world. Oh man. Now the weight of that destiny is going to be crushing. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. You'll be fine. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I, I'm glad that we finally, after so long, got an, a third Bill and Ted movie, and it turned out to be better than I, I ever, you know, had any uh, expectation that it would be. And it was fun going back and watching the other two. And um, yeah, like I said, Bill and Ted was just such a, uh, a formative part of my childhood and taught me so much about history. So uh, uh, yeah, I can't can't thank this movie, these movies enough for uh, bringing so much joy into my life. And, uh, yeah, so uh, that's a good note to end on. So let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Tom Grenter, and Raphael Jordan. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks a lot, man. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Tom Grenter, and Raphael Jordan for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. 
So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.